1: for generations to come, listen to TMI on the Black Defect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's
2: right. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as that 70s show and that 90s show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, Watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This series
3: is inspired by true events. The stories you're about to hear are fictional, and so are the characters who are played by actors.
4: Hey, swimmers, it's top of the hour, which means it's mandatory rest time. Everyone out of the pool until 10 after 3. Thank you.
3: It's the summer of 1987. We graduated a couple of months before, and we're excited for the next chapter of our lives to begin. But honestly, losing Mr. Billingsley made all the pomp and circumstance feel kind of trivial, you know? But yeah, we graduated. I'm hoping the summer will be better and I have high hopes, mainly because I am now a lifeguard at Pineside Pool. Oh my God, you were so strict. You'd constantly be yelling, walk, walk, walk. (laughs) Totally true. But you know what? I don't care. No one is gonna get hurt on my watch. No one. But what happened outside of the pool, that I wish I could have controlled. I'm Nancy Clark. This is The Murder Years, Episode Seven Lester. It's Thursday, August 27th, the last weekend of summer. And my friends and I will soon be leaving for college. We're all excited because on Saturday, there's a big keg party at the Showalter's farm and we are all going. Tatiana and I are counting down the hours for my lifeguard shift to be over.
5: I laid out at the pool all day. I wanted to be super tan. After the pool closed, all of us went to Melanie's to get ready. We are so
3: excited about the party at Shelley's. She's in our grade, but we're not super close. She grew up out in the country on a 50-acre farm with her parents and two older brothers. Her brother's parties are legendary. Melanie and I had attended several over the years. I remember Shelley's brother had some of the biggest parties in the history
0: of Mount Pine.
3: This one would no doubt be epic. Shelley's parents are away for the weekend. And her brothers are the quote-unquote chaperones.
6: I did my first keg stand, and Tatiana did her first beer bong that night. But of course, we had no idea what was going down just like three farms away.
1: 911, what's your emergency? Oh my god. Yes. Someone just broke into my house. City.
7: Oh God!
0: Someone's in your house. Hang up the phone. Where are you? Hang up the phone
7: now, or I'll.
3: Back in 1987, when someone would call into 911, their location was unknown because this is before GPS and caller ID. So, unless the caller gives their address first responders don't know where to find them.
8: I was at the station when the call came in. It was around midnight.
3: Officer Pat Shepard has been working for the Mount Pine PD for about three years in 1987, and in those days, he preferred the night shift. That's why he was first on the scene at Lisa Anderson's murder in episode one, and why he will be again tonight.
8: The call center was just down the hall, and I actually heard the call come in. I took notice because it sounded like the woman was in danger.
3: Today, Shepard is a sergeant and looking forward to his retirement. He agrees to share what he remembers from that day.
8: So, yeah, since the woman wasn't able to give her location, there was almost nothing we could do. We just had to hope she would survive whatever was happening out there and then be able to call us back.
1: One, one What's your emergency? He's gone.
5: He's gone. Um, this is Jolene McBride. I called before.
1: Where are you? I'm at 1887 County Road. 14...
3: So, we're at the party pretty wasted when we hear and see several police cars and ambulances whiz by. And we get a little freaked out because most of us are mm, underage. Everyone pretty much scatters and gets the hell out of there.
8: I remember there were lots of units sent out there that night. When we arrived, there was a woman on a huge wraparound porch standing there, crying, with blood dripping down her face.
6: It was awful. I was so relieved to see the police.
3: Back in August of 1987, Joella McBride is 23 years old and taking care of her grandparents' farm while they're out of town visiting family. Today, she's 58 and a vet living in Boise, Idaho. She was surprised to get my call, but said she'd share her story with me.
6: So I remember this night like it was yesterday. I told the officer it was maybe around 1130 when I heard the noise downstairs. With my grandparents out of town, I was alone in the house and I was scared. At first, I thought it was just the wind or the old house, which was so creaky, so I laid in bed and waited. I mean, I tried really hard to talk myself into falling back to sleep because it was nothing. I heard nothing. I kept telling myself it was nothing. But then, I heard another noise. That one sounded like footsteps. I was really scared. I could feel my heart beating in my throat, you know? I decided I couldn't just lie there, I needed to go check it out or I would never be able to fall back to sleep. Was that a smart move or a dumb one? Well, I was about to find out. So I quietly and slowly went down the stairs but with every step I took, they creaked. When I got down to the first floor, standing there in the living room was this kid. He was a teenager, a a flippin' teenager.
3: Joellen says the kid standing in front of her is white, around 16 or 17, dirty and shirtless.
6: I screamed, and he told me to shut up. Then he rushed me and punched me twice in the face. I fell down, and I could feel the blood streaming down my face. When I started to cry, he told me to shut up.
8: While Joellen was telling me all this, she started to get very emotional. She said the guy started threatening her life unless she gave him money. She said she didn't have any money, no more than a couple of dollars, which he took from her purse. He was mad and he hit her again. This time he punched her right in the eye. Then he said he wanted her to cook him some food.
3: Joellen says she makes him a sandwich and then while he's eating it, he asks for a clean shirt. This is her chance to call for help.
8: She went upstairs to her grandparents' bedroom and called 911. Moments later, she turned around, and the kid was standing in the doorway with a knife in his hand. Made her hang up the phone, punched her a few more times, opened a drawer, and pulled out a shirt. Made them go back down to the kitchen.
6: I couldn't believe he didn't stab me. Right there, and then... I mean, why did he bring a knife from the kitchen upstairs if he didn't intend to use it? Anyway, he just sat down at the kitchen table for what seemed like forever. I watched the clock behind him. 22 minutes went by before he said or did a thing. That's when he asked me for my car keys. I was afraid he was going to take me somewhere with him, so I lied and said my car didn't work. It broke down yesterday and I told him my boyfriend was on his way over to spend the night so he could take me to work in the morning. My car worked, of course, and I didn't have a boyfriend. I was shocked because it seemed to work. Seconds later, he got up with a knife from our kitchen drawer still in hand. He opened the back door and ran off.
3: Joellen watches the guy as he disappears into the night. She takes a deep breath, then calls 911 911, again.
8: I tried to get a good description of the guy. Joellen said when he arrived, he was shirtless, and he was wearing gray pants and white tennis shoes. But he left wearing her grandfather's shirt, an old John Deere green t-shirt. It was huge on him.
3: Officer Shepard calls the station with all the details, and a Be On The Lookout bulletin is put out. Officers alert nearby residents while others patrol Mount Pine. But it seems like the guy has vanished into thin air. About seven hours later
1: 911, what's your emergency? This, yeah, this is Mary Charles. My husband is bleeding. He's bleeding a lot. What happened? Please send help. He's
9: lost so much blood. We're at 2290
6: County Road 415. Please hurry.
3: Police arrive at Mary and Lester Charles' farm to a blood-soaked scene. 47-year-old Lester Charles is lying in the barn bleeding from his neck. Paramedics try to stabilize him, but he's lost a lot of blood. They quickly get him loaded into the ambulance and speed off. Sadly, he dies on the way to the hospital.
10: So, we had another homicide.
3: Detective Wallace will be the lead on this case. He just solved the murder of beloved teacher, Mark Billingsley, nine months before.
10: When I arrived at the Charles farm, I remember Mrs. Charles was inconsolable but I knew as hard as it was for her to talk, I needed to know if her husband said anything about what happened to him before paramedics took him away. Anything that could help us catch his attacker. (laughs) Shit. His killer. The only thing her husband said was that he caught a guy sleeping in their barn, and the guy attacked him with a knife. I asked if it seemed her husband knew the guy, and she said no. She didn't think so. I asked if she saw him. She said no. It was a trail of blood that led out of the back of the barn, small droplets, maybe from the knife, or maybe the assailant was cut too. But just yards away from the barn, the trail of blood seemed to stop.
3: Detective Wallace says they call in the county's canine unit. The dog does pick up a scent, but then loses it about a mile away. Maybe the guy got into a car and the dog lost the scent? With very few leads, Detective Wallace says he goes back to the station, leaving officers and technicians to process the scene. But back at the station, he learned something that may possibly change the course of his investigation.
10: When I heard what I heard, my jaw dropped to the floor.
3: Detective Tom Wallace is working the homicide of Lester Charles. He was killed in his own barn by some unknown assailant. Although he's at the very beginning of investigating the case, Detective Wallace is stumped until some information comes into the station that points him in a certain direction.
10: It came across the wire that Stephen Hartford was on the run.
3: You might remember Stephen Hartford from episode 5. He was 15 years old when he abducted and brutally killed 13-year-old Victoria Brown. At this point, he's 17 and serving life without parole for that murder.
10: So yeah, I learned that punk escaped prison the day before. I was thinking, was he the guy who broke into Joe Ellen's and later was sleeping in Lester Charles's barn? I called the reporting authorities needing to learn more. Okay, now I'm just going to read from my notes here. While Stephen Hartford was being transferred to another prison, he and another inmate overpowered the driver and then fled. The authorities told me they didn't contact our jurisdiction because they were 200 miles away. They caught the other escaped inmate and they felt confident they would find Hartford before he got very far. But when they learned he carjacked someone, They contacted us thinking he could be headed back to the area. I knew I had to let Detective Thompson know right away. For many reasons, one of which, she could be in danger.
3: Marsha Thompson is the detective who worked the Victoria Brown murder and helped put Stephen Hartford behind bars. Talking about this particular case is hard for her. I almost
11: fell over when I heard the news. How in the world was this kid able to escape? So there was no way I wasn't going to work the case with Wallace. I wanted that psychopath Hartford back in prison, and I was going to put him there a second time. I just hoped he didn't hurt or kill anyone
3: else before we could find him. The first thing the detectives do is take Stephen Hartford's mugshot to Joellen McBride. They want to see if he's the kid who broke into her grandparents' house.
10: Joellen had just gotten back from the hospital and was pretty tired, if I remember correctly. But we showed her a six-pack, a lineup of six photos. It didn't take her but a second to point out Hartford.
6: Yeah, it was number four. Without a doubt, I remember clearly. He was number four.
11: Well, that was all we needed. Stephen Hartford was back in town. We didn't have confirmation he killed Lester Charles just yet, but my gut was telling me it was him. We called in the county's helicopters, the K-9 units, and state police to assist. Officers also went door to door and asked if they could search the barns and sheds on people's properties. There was always a chance that Hartford stole a car and was no longer in the area, but So far, no one else reported any missing cars or carjackings. We had to find him. An official manhunt was underway. Oh, God. Uh, Having to tell Dorothy Brown and her son, Donnie,
10: that her little girl, Victoria's killer, was on the loose. Oh, that was awful. We assured them they would have 24-hour surveillance and protection on them.
3: Later that afternoon, police call a press conference.
11: We've received word that 17-year-old Stephen Hartford escaped while being transported to court and he's made his way back to Mount Pine. Let me say this loud and clear. Stephen Hartford is armed and dangerous.
12: Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: My parents, my friends, and I are terrified. My dad puts a weapon in every room, like baseball bats and knives, preparing himself in case that maniac comes to our house. And my parents won't even let me go out. I have to stay home where they can make sure I'm safe. Tatiana and I talk about it on the phone for hours. We were trying to imagine where he was hiding, who he wanted to hurt. Was he was he trying to go home? Was his dad helping him or hiding him? Can you believe? We're now in a lockdown situation because of a madman? A, a known murderer is on the loose in Mount Pine?
10: I opened my old files on Stephen Hartford and did some more digging.
3: Detective Wallace learns Frank Hartford, Stephen's dad, left Mount Pine shortly after his son went to prison.
10: So, looks like Frank Hartford moved closer to the prison so he could visit Stephen more often. I asked some of the guys to go to his house and interview him. Frank was home, but (laughs) not helpful. Said he hadn't seen or heard from his son, and he probably wouldn't help law enforcement even if he did charming
11: so by the end of the day i started thinking maybe hartford left mount pine why would he hang around here when he had to know that everyone was looking for him the search team was coming up with nothing as the hours ticked by we were all on edge and going crazy waiting
3: Early Sunday morning, a tipster calls 911 from a payphone at the gas station on the corner of Monroe and Sherman. He claims he saw that kid who escaped from the prison. Several police cars arrive at the gas station moments later and locate the 911 caller. He points to the guy sitting on a bench outside the cafe next to the gas station. The guy he believes is Stephen Hartford. But as officers approach the guy, they immediately see he looks nothing like Hartford.
10: We got maybe 28 calls like this since the press conference. The 911 call center was flooded with tips, but none of them, not one of them, uh, panned out. Normally, we're in the hunt trying to figure out who committed a crime. This time, we knew exactly who we were looking for. We just couldn't find him.
11: Yeah, we needed him to mess up sooner rather than later, because the town was beyond on edge. And rightfully so, he was a violent predator with no regard or remorse for anything he did or anyone he hurt.
1: 911, what's your emergency? He's here. He won't let me. He's holding me.
3: 911 call has just come in from a woman sounding like she's being held hostage.
10: I felt in my gut it was Stephen Hartford the woman was calling about. So we got ourselves poised and ready to respond.
11: But it's a shit scenario again. We didn't get an address before the call got cut off. We had to hope and pray she called back. Not that officers weren't out trying to find her or him because they were. But we had nothing to go
3: on to find this caller. Fifteen long hours later, around 11 p.m.
4: It was honestly the craziest thing in all my years, then or since.
3: Officer Charles Dixon has five years on the job back in 1987. He works with the K-9 unit and still has his best K-9 copper by his side. That's the German shepherd that helped find Victoria Brown's body back in February of 1986. Today... Officer Dixon is retired and lives in San Antonio, where he fosters dogs. I will never forget this. I'm at the
4: gas station on the edge of town, fueling up my cruiser and getting coffee. Copper was with me, probably hoping I'd give him a treat or something. All of a sudden, I see this woman uh, running towards me. She's barefoot, bleeding,
3: hysterical, and she was pointing behind her. The woman was Chris Newman. Back in 1987, she was 52 years old. She has since passed away. But her bravery that day is the stuff of legends. She was freaking
4: out, saying... The guy who escaped from prison, he's in my house. I immediately called in medical help for her, gave dispatcher address on County Road 212.
3: Detectives Thompson and Wallace get the call and hightail it to Chris Newman's house. While
4: paramedics were treating Ms. Newman, I got some more information from her. I did refresh my memory on some of the details, so here they are.
7: I'd fallen asleep watching TV in the living room, and the next thing I knew, I heard the sound of glass breaking. I ran to the kitchen and grabbed a knife, but before I knew it, this kid was in my house. He rushed me and punched me in the face and chest, and I fell to the ground, dropping the knife. He picked it up and said he would stab me if I tried anything.
4: Now, what happened next was absolutely bizarre.
7: He said he was hungry and told me to make him some food, so I made him a grilled cheese sandwich, which he scarfed down. He sat quiet for a while, then he paced, he sat, he paced. He told me to make him some more food, so I made him a pork
4: chop. Hours and hours went by of him sitting and pacing and barely speaking, all the while grasping her knife tightly in his hand. Ms. Newman said she tried to talk to him, you know, try and keep him calm, but he didn't want to talk. She said they watched some TV, 21 Jump Street, and then married with children. Then, in a moment of brilliance, Ms. Newman suggested he take a shower. She said he might feel better. And unbelievably, he agreed. She got him a towel and a washcloth. She said she waited for him to get in.
7: And then I ran out the door and ran until I found someone at the gas station.
4: She ran out the door and ran until she found me at the gas station. She was one tough and smart lady. For 15 hours, she outsmarted him and kept herself alive. I mean, incredible.
3: Mount Pine police surround the small white farmhouse. County and state police arrive moments later. I had this one moment
11: looking around at all the law enforcement that were there, thinking, this dude is 17 years old. How in the world did all of this happen?
10: So a sergeant got on the megaphone and started talking to Stephen Hartford, trying to get him to come outside on his own, saying it was going to be a lot worse for him if we had to go inside and get him, you know, the whole nine yards. But Hartford wasn't complying.
3: Police waited out for two hours, Then they start becoming concerned Stephen Hartford has killed himself. So they decide to go inside. In Chris Newman's bedroom, they find Stephen Hartford asleep.
10: Asleep. He was asleep. Unbelievable. So we arrested him without incident. And as I was walking him outside, putting him in the back of a patrol car, he said the words, I will never
2: forget. He said... I should've killed that bitch when I had the chance.
11: You know, I never thought I was going to have to deal with Stephen Hartford again. (laughs) Boy, was I wrong. And it wouldn't end with his arrest. He was charged with breaking into Joe Ellen McBride's grandparents' house and assaulting her, murdering Lester Charles Because we were able to match his blood type to blood found in the barn, and he was charged with breaking into Chris Newman's house and assaulting her. Not to mention all the charges related to assaulting the officers when he escaped and evaded
3: authorities for days. Stephen Hartford is eventually found guilty of all charges and sentenced to life plus 175 years. Basically, he's never getting out. Unless, of course, he pulls off another escape. Two days after Stephen Hartford was caught, I left for college. I should have been through-the-roof ecstatic. But there was just this dark cloud hanging over me. Over us. My friends and I were just so rocked by all the deaths that happened during our high school years. All we wanted was for it to be over. Even if we were moving away, we didn't want it to continue. Not for us and not for those we left behind. We'd be able to move away and move on for a little while, but the peace, it wouldn't last forever. Next time on The Murder Years.
12: A woman's body has been found in the woods behind Mount Pine Community College.
3: After 30 years of peace, Mount Pine is under attack once again.
12: I'm at the scene of yet another murder.
3: Will it ever end?
12: Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Murder Years is a production of AYR Media and iHeart Media. Executive Producer, Aliza Rosen for AYR Media. Co-Executive Producer, Paulina Williams. Written by Leah Rothman. Directed. By Michael Seltich. Original concept developed in partnership with ann Margaret Johns and Greg Spring. Casting by Eisenberg Beans Casting. Senior Associate Producer Eric Newman. Associate Producer Jill Puszesnik. Editing and Sound Design by Tristan Bankston. Mastering by Cameron Taggy. Audio Engineering by Matt Jacobson. Studio Engineering by Jay Brannon. Music by Nathan Bankston. Legal Counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive Producer for iHeartMedia, Maya Howard. Performances for this episode by Gabrielle Carteris as Nancy Clark. Kelly Deadman as Tatiana. Orla Cassidy as Melanie. Maricilda Garcia as Carla. Minanin Day as Stephen Hartford. Bo Kane as Officer Shepard. Carolyn Jania as 911 Caller. Tamio Adams as young Joellen McBride. Desiree Rodriguez as 911 operator. Tootie Rauch as Detective Thompson. H. Richard Green as Detective Wallace. Jesse Hendricks as Joellen McBride. Jesse Hendricks as Lauren Collins. Justin Maraconda as pool intercom announcer. John Ralston Craig as DJ Johnny Jolt. Tom Virtue as Officer Dixon. Udonna Daniels as reporter number two. Additional voices by Sarah Zook and Alex Salem.
0: Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI.